0: Welcome to ASRS's Journal of Veterinal Diseases Authors Forum. I'm your host, Dr. Timothy Murray, Editor-in-Chief of JVRD. On each episode of the JVRD Authors Forum, I will interview innovative retinal researchers on their studies featured only in JVRD and how these studies will impact our patients' care in our clinics tune in to hear directly from investigators about the clinical implications of the newest and highest quality research in the field of retina. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Rishi Gupta, Associate Professor, Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Dr. Gupta, you had um, an unusual case that really is fascinating within our field of pars vitrectomy for vitromacular traction that had persistent loculated subfovial subretinal fluid. You know, I think we're used to seeing that occasionally in cases, particularly when we would buckle, um, but it's a little less common in uh, cases where we're doing vitromacular surgery. And your case was relatively unique. So can you take me through a little bit of the approach to the patient?
1: Absolutely. So this was a 64 year old with, um, as we said, visually significant vitreo traction. It was so significant he was patching the eye for the past three months. So he was quite symptomatic and very interested in moving forward with some sort of intervention. And we ended up doing a combined phaco vitrectomy surgery. But very interestingly, intraoperatively and postoperatively, uh, we had this uh, subretinal fluid that was persistent for many, many months. And as you mentioned, we see this sometimes in different conditions, such as retinal detachment, whether that's post-buccal repair. I actually have a patient who I'm following now, post-pneumatic repair, who has this persistent subretinal fluid, but this actually hasn't been reported in VMT post vitrectomy surgery, uh, to our knowledge. We have seen it uh, reported in um, chemical vitriolysis and pneumatic vitriolysis for VMT. So I thought it was a really interesting case that made me reflect on a handful of different things, like uh, VMT and our options and how those have changed, you know, over the past decade. Um, thinking about vitrectomy itself and the different steps and how we can maybe try and optimize things to maximize patient safety. Uh, As well, thinking about multimodal imaging and OCT, and then thinking about this subretinal fluid and why in some cases, you know, the fluid will persist and why in some cases fluid is better tolerated um, than in other cases. So uh, it was a neat case as far as, you know, trying to make me reflect on different topics like that.
0: Well, let's go back even a step further because you know that I'm a strong proponent of combined phacovitrectomy, but that at least within the U.S., that that maybe has a limited um, deployment, whereas out of the U.S., very common. So you felt the patient had a visually significant cataract, But did you think you could do the procedure without the cataract being done and you were doing this to optimize a single surgical recovery? Or did you feel that the cataract needed to be removed to allow you to do the surgery?
1: Uh, In this scenario, it was really to look at giving him a single procedure. Uh, I, I felt that I would be able to look through that lens during surgery, have a clear enough view to be able to do surgery. And so I always have a discussion with patients about the idea of a post vitrectomy cataract, the possibility of that and requiring then a second surgery and all the risks of a second surgery. And uh, in the end, we decided to move forward with a combined procedure.
0: Yeah, I think in these cases where there's even a modicum of early cataract, if you're doing a vitrectomy in the macular region, those patients' cataracts progress significantly, fairly rapidly. And the patient goes from my vision is really good to my vision's worse than before we started. So I've had some disappointments with patients that have separated the two surgical procedures. Now, preoperatively, I, you know, you, you looked at the patient, do you do anything preoperatively before surgery um, either pharmacologically or imaging to give you a better handle on how to manage the patient?
1: That's a great question. I'm always very interested, of course, in looking at the OCT. And there are a couple of things that come to my mind. When I'm looking at that OCT, I'm curious, is this a very focal adhesion or is this a, a broad sort of insertion? Uh, if somebody has a more focal adhesion, I'm thinking maybe this might you know, resolve on its own. Uh, more likely than if it's a much more broad adhesion. There's a nice study that we saw from Osley Retina with the first author, last name is TZU, where they looked at 230 eyes from various centers. And we saw that a third of patients, if you wait, you know, a year, year and a half, actually had resolution. And so again, if I see more focal uh, sort of uh, VMT, then I'm, I'm thinking, okay, maybe this might resolve on its own. I'm looking for Epiretinal membrane, I'm looking for if there's significant cystoid changes or subretinal fluid, how much you know things are distorted. Uh, is it really dragging and pulling in one direction or the other? And then sometimes you get these cases with quite extreme anteropostoral pull and, and the whole retina, you know, appears almost like there's a lot of schisis there and, and you know, large sort of cavities. Uh, certainly those kinds of appearances make me nervous to uh, move forward with an operation. So these are things that are, are in the back of my mind as I'm looking through uh, the preoperative OCT.
0: We've also seen some experience with using a topical carbonic anhydrase inhibitor hoping to alter retinal pigment epithelial pump function. Have you had any experience with that in your patients with VMT?
1: That's a great question. I generally have not leaned on that. Um, I uh, often will be much more keen to simply observe. I don't, I don't know if there's much of a downside of uh, what you mentioned, uh, but generally speaking, I am quite conservative with moving forward with vitrectomy. I'll really talk to patients, see where they're at, and uh, a lot of them are okay You know, to, to give it some time. This gentleman had, as I mentioned, um, had such severe symptoms that he wasn't using the eye at all. He was patching it. And certainly I felt that moving forward with a vitrectomy in that setting after we had done a full informed consent made sense.
0: Yeah, I think a surgical decision was was good. We have had some experience with the topical dorzolamide using that, and and I found some benefit in some patients. It's a small percentage, um, but I also think that's beneficial when I have postoperative fluid in or under the retina. I'll consider that also. So you've got the patient, you're going to the OR. We don't need to talk about the FACO. I think that's straightforward. Um, talk me through the surgical approach to the VMT.
1: Absolutely. And, and I find this pretty interesting because my own approach has evolved over the years. I'm about 10 years into practice. And so I like to think of VMT surgery uh, with two really important things to reflect on. So the first is um, actually elevating the hyaloid and separating that vitreomacular traction. And the second is if we're going to peel anything. So with the first one, um, again, we have significant pull on the fovea. And I think the whole approach during surgery, as I'm going in there, I'm thinking, how can I minimize adding in any more pull on that fovea? So when we're elevating the hyloid now, I do like to try and um, watch the fovea as I'm elevating, do it under a high magnification. And sometimes you can go in with the cutter still on and high vacuum aspiration, and you can move around the macula, and sometimes it'll separate simply with that maneuver before I go to the nerve to try and elevate the hyaloid from the nerve and create the full PVD. Earlier in my career, I used to go straight to the nerve and I'd put it on full max vac, start aspirating, and I just pull straight up. You know, um, Now I very much do it in as, as gentle um, a process as possible. And I like to try and um, after, I've worked a little bit around the fovea, if I can elevate it there, then go to the nerve, elevate at the nerve. And as soon as I see that hyloid pop off the nerve, I actually then go back on cutter. Uh, Usually I'm operating at 7,500 cut. And I like to try and sweep and progressively and very gently allow that hyloid to start to elevate and progressively go towards the periphery. We know from uh, some larger series, so there's, a nice meta-analysis from 2013 with Timothy Jackson as the lead author, where 400 eyes are reviewed from multiple studies. And we did see about a 5% rate of retinal detachment. And we know in these cases with vitro traction, the hyloid is adherent and it can be very adherent even in the mid periphery. So that was the, the scenario in this case as i elevated the hyloid it was very stubborn once we came to the mid periphery and again earlier in my career i think i was a little bit more cavalier about just going back on vacuum and elevating and pushing and elevating pushing and i you know would not infrequently in that sort of scenario get uh, an iatrogenic break where i'm i'm much more uh, cautious about that now and i'm i'm okay with as i did in this case leaving the hyloid and not pushing it past that Um, mid-periphery with the goal of trying not to create an iatrogenic break.
0: Um, Rishi, do you routinely stain with um, Triamcinolone and or, or do you feel comfortable to elevate first without staining?
1: I typically will elevate without staining and often what happens is as soon as I ask for staining and our nurse goes and gets it and then they start to draw it up, I say I don't need it anymore. <laughs> but certainly there are times when uh, it's very beneficial and I, I you know, I'm being a little facetious, but you know, placing it into the eye and, and sometimes that really shows you, especially along the nerve, if you're having trouble, oh, there's you know a little edge here or a pocket here where I can go in and that's what's gonna allow me to to lift things up.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So if you are approaching the case you know, there's nothing wrong with staining. I think once you're more comfortable, you stain very little. But if you're having a hard time, stain. And if you're early in, the, in your, your surgical career, stain. Now, you got the hyaloid off. You didn't get a peripheral break. Good for you. Now, now, what are you going to do with the re- residual macula in this case?
1: So, very interestingly, during this case, as I elevated the hyaloid, um, immediately I saw what appeared to me to be subretinal fluid and what was later uh, confirmed with OCT testing. So this happened intraoperatively, and we've all, I think, had those cases where either the ILM, the ERM, or even the hyloid is very adherent. And we can imagine a scenario where the neurosensory retina might elevate somewhat. So here I was, um, you know, doing the case, saw what appeared to be subretinal fluid form, Uh, there was epiretinal membrane that needed to be peeled and both the epiretinal membrane and whether or not you're gonna peel ILM, uh, I I typically do do that. Uh, Again, going back to that 2013 series from Timothy Jackson as first author, we know that macular hole is a complication that we can get from these surgeries, which was seen in about 1% of those cases. So I do like to, if I'm there, peel the ILM. Both the ILM and the ERM were extremely adherent, but I was successful in peeling those. And again, another thing that I've um, changed a little bit in my practice over the years is I I would get these cases here and there, as we all do, of extremely adherent ERM or ILM. And it uh, impressed upon me probably the importance of trying to peel towards the phobia as you're going around that circle, constantly trying to peel towards the phobia rather than peeling across it and then continuing to pull in one direction, which again will put more traction on that fovea. So again, going back to it, you know, as I go into these cases, I'm thinking, how can I minimize my chances of getting a retinal break? And how can I minimize the traction on the foveal center?
0: So you saw the fluid, you didn't see a break, you've you've managed the membrane. What are you thinking about in terms of tamponade at that point?
1: My thought is going towards that there must be a little micro break that I may have created as a possibility, or maybe this was just mechanical traction that's pulled it off. But in the event that I have this micro break, then immediately I'm thinking that I want to put in some sort of gas. I think air would be fine. I leaned on SF6 and I asked the patient actually to position face down for several days as well, with the hope and the expectation that this fluid would be gone very soon.
0: And so, must have been disappointing for that first OCT after you've operated with release of the hyaloid, release of the membrane and a tamponade and persistent subretinal fluid. So so how did you then discuss that with the patient and what did you decide to do?
1: Absolutely, so a lot of these case reports and, and I'll congratulate you on this series. I mean, I really enjoy watching these videos and I think JVRD has done a wonderful job uh, allowing us a forum to, to bring about, you know, a lot of these case reports. And most of these case reports are going to bring opportunities for very critical, crucial, important conversation and, and communication with the patient uh, that can, you know, uh, be challenging for all of us. The patient's disappointed, you're disappointed. and so how do you together, you know move forward in an honest fashion and, and maintaining that relationship? It's challenging sometimes. This was a very understanding patient. Uh, we had uh, done a very good consent. So when I discussed with him where we were at and, and what my hopes were, I, I had an expectation that the fluid would go away soon. I said, but you know time will tell. And uh, so we observed, we watched and month after month after month, unfortunately we had this persistent fluid and the vision was actually worse at this stage from a and acuity perspective so from every standpoint we were struggling unfortunately Um, and so luckily again he was a very understanding patient and a patient patient (laughs) and in fact i saw him just a few weeks ago and the fluid finally did resorb an update to the paper, and this is uh, 20 months later that the fluid uh, actually resorbed. With the vision then, for some time, it dropped down to about, you'd say 2100, 2200, but it actually picked up back again and ended up at about 2070, which was where he started preoperatively. So happily, we came back to the same acuity but he did say, actually, his metamorphopsia, thankfully, was significantly better, so he was no longer patching the eye. So we did have a modest improvement at the end of the day, although it took 20 months to get there, so we had to be very patient.
0: And remember, too, that vision can even continue to improve in these cases. And since you had an anatomic compromise to the vision, you now that that's resolved, you may actually see recovery of vision. So I would, I would keep my fingers crossed that you're going you're gonna to do well. That's um, a great so, Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for joining us. Great discussion. I I, I think when you listen to this, there are so many pearls um, that that you have incorporated into your surgical approach that I think are really relevant. Um, and I think you're right. The conversations around this um, become very fascinating. People have very strong feelings about when to manage something and how to manage. And so I think you did... A superb job in approaching this with the best, you know, approaches evidence-based available to us, and then a and then a measure of patience that I've got to say I don't have. So good for you, twenty months waiting and resolved. So thank you very much. Really a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and I just wanted to give a shout out to Darcy Wilson and Ashlyn Pinto, who are uh, the co-authors on this paper. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the JVRD Authors Forum. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Visit www.asrs.org forward slash JVRD forum on the ASRS website to learn more. See you soon.